We're looking at the subject this morning of corporate fellowship. Corporate fellowship. And the first thing that I want to bring out is that we are singularly saved. Now you'll understand what I mean by that in a moment. Sometimes, sometimes during great revivals, the Holy Spirit seems to come upon people in saving power with such wide-scale movement that it appears as though God is saving people en masse, that is, in groups, by the hundreds, by the thousands. I think of the Welsh revival that took place many, many years ago, or the Great Awakening, or what has been called the Second Great Awakening, which are, these things occurred in our country and in England. And there was such a movement of the Holy Spirit upon people at the preaching of Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards that people came to repentance and faith in Christ by the thousands. By the thousands. That's why it's called the Great Awakening. Because they were saved that way. These more modern, that's modern, but these more modern outpourings of the Spirit mimic what we studied in Acts 2, verse 41, where we read that the, at the preaching of Peter, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, wouldn't you think of that as some kind of a great awakening? 3,000 in one location in one day. And then, if that's not enough, two chapters later, Peter and John continue to preach the gospel, though they were warned by the authorities to cease and desist. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Acts 4, verse 4. So, the 3,000 became 5,000, and the church had grown by two additional thousand in just days. Difference between Acts 2 and Acts 4. Wow, this is this is wow, great movement of the Spirit of God going on here in Jerusalem, beginning on the day of Pentecost and in the aftermath as well. What I want you to notice, however, is that each of these people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus as Savior as individuals. Let me read it for you. In the first account, Acts 2, those who accepted Peter's message believed and were baptized and they were added that day 3,000. Those who accepted. Or in the Acts 4, many who heard the message believed and the number grew to about 5,000. Now these are insights from the historian, Dr. Luke, who is writing the book of Acts. These are indications that there were far more people present on the day of Pentecost than 3,000 people. And again, two chapters later in the preaching of Peter and John, after their release from prison, far more than 2,000. And so the gospel was believed by some, but not all. And the some were drawn by God's Spirit individually. The biblical pattern, if, if we're looking for a pattern, is more in keeping with what we read in Acts 2, verse 46 and 47. It says, Every day they, that is the new Christians, 
continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 46 and 47. Now, this is not salvation by the masses. This is not salvation as a group, but more like onesies and twosies. Here one, there two, over there five. Daily, you see, an addition coming as the gospel began to be disseminated among the people. And this individualistic drawing of sinners to faith and repentance reminds us that one, no one can repent for you. No one can believe for you. Christian children cannot say, well, my dad is a Christian, so I'm a Christian. A spouse cannot say, well, my husband is a believer, therefore I am a believer. We cannot say, I was born in the Christian nation of America, so I must be a Christian. People do this all the time. They will look to our godly founding fathers, if we're talking about our nation, or a godly person in their family tree, a grandmother, a grandfather, and they will conclude, because grandma was a good Christian, it must mean that I am one too. Well, let me tell you that faith and repentance is not inherited through the biological genes as one would inherit blue eyes or brown hair. No. Each person, as a person, must wrestle with his or her own sin, repent of his own sin, and put their trust in Jesus and their only hope as their only hope of salvation. The Apostle John wrote it this way, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those, and I might say to those alone, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now listen to the explanation. Children born not of natural descent. Actually, the Greek says here, born not of the bloodlines. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John 1, verse 11 through 13. It doesn't come through the bloodlines. This is why evangelical preachers speak of knowing Christ as your personal Savior. They use that terminology. And they are saying, don't think that you can be saved on the merit of some other saintly person in your family tree. Their faith is not your faith. Their turning from sin is not your turning from sin. Their love of God is not your love of God. Their obedience to the gospel call is not your obedience. Paul wrote it this way, We will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, Every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, verse 10 through 12. Wow. 
The implications of this are far-reaching. But the most stunning point that I see in this is, since this is so, that is, because each person will have to give an account of himself or herself before God, no one can blame another for their spiritual destiny. You cannot say, well, I didn't have Christian parents to model the gospel before me, and that's why I'm not a believer. You cannot say, well, I was born in a Muslim country, and I never heard of Jesus Christ. That's why I am Islam in my faith. And that's kind of blaming the providence of God for not placing them in the proper religious environment to hear about Jesus and to believe. But you want it from Scripture? Here's what Paul says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless, godlessness and wickedness of men. The godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Not that they haven't had any truth. It's that they suppress the truth. They say things like, I'm not interested. Or they say things, I'm not listening to that God stuff anymore. They know about it. They've heard it. They squelch it. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since, Paul goes on, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His qualities, His nature, and He lists two, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without Excuse. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. What is he saying? Paul is saying, hey, take a look at yourself. Take a look at yourself and see how different you are from all of creation. You are not an impersonal product of protoplasm oozing up from the primeval slime. You were created in the image of God. That is to say, God's personal traits of knowledge, will, and emotions are stamped on your, your character. You can think. You can make decisions. You can empathize with the joys and heartaches of life. And that shows that you're like the Creator and distinct from the mammals that populate the earth, and therefore you are accountable to your Creator. Or again, take a look at the heavens. See what David saw. What did David see? He tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech. There's no language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all of the earth. Their words to the ends 
of the world. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4. I looked up on a website this week and I was trying to figure out how many languages, how many languages do you think are in the world? And this was, <laughs> this blew my mind. I didn't realize this. But if you take them all into account, there's 6,909 languages in the world. So think about this. Millions of galaxies, billions of stars, and nowhere where this revelation cannot be seen, nowhere where it is hidden, obscured, ambiguous, no, everywhere God's eternal power and divine nature is spoken with such clarity, such thoroughness, such magnitude, that men are without excuse for not finding God. The stars in His handiwork speak the language of the people of the earth. To use the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books, he is there and he is not silent. He's there and he's not silent. He calls you and me to find him, to see him, to submit to his deity and power. And if you do not, in light of the clarity of his revelation of himself, you are left without excuse and with no one to blame but yourself. We are singularly saved. And may I say singularly accountable. And kindly say it to all of us that God has not left us in the dark. We start out in dark. Yeah. But he hasn't left us in the dark. He has given forth a witness to his creation, to us who can think and reason and so forth about himself. Now, though we are singularly singularly, that's hard to say, saved and singularly accountable, we are community bonded. Community bonded. Immediately, immediately. Not a week later, not a day later, not an hour later, but instantaneously every individual Christian believer, the moment he or she believes, is incorporated into the body of Christ as a member with Jesus as Savior and Lord. Paul writes it this way, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Now, baptism here. This is not water baptism, but spirit baptism, which water baptism symbolizes. But what does it mean to be baptized by one spirit into one body? Well, it means that there is no such thing as being a Christian without being bonded into community. Sometimes, sometimes in our world, we will run across a person who drops out of society. They will build a shack in the woods. And they will build a makeshift stove from bricks or stone to keep them warm. They will hunt for their food or fish for their food. And the only time you see them in the community 
is when they are scavenging trash cans or drop boxes for clothes and other discards that they can use to exist. They bother no one. They speak to no one. They write to no one. No one calls them. They are happy to live alone and to be left alone. We call these people hermits. Or other designations as well. May I say that God's salvation never, ever promotes or supports this Lone Ranger brand of Christianity. In fact, it is no Christianity at all. Rather, God instantaneously incorporates the individual believer from the various social, economic, racial, ethnic backgrounds into the body of Christ, obliterating distinctions like Jew-Greek, slave-free, or in Galatians 3.28, male-female, when it comes to the constituency of the body of Christ. This diversity is an explosive concept and comprehensive mix. Let me read it for you from Revelation 7. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to what? Our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All of the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 7, verse 9 through 12. 6,609 languages in the world today. And I looked up, there are 196 nations in our world today. And they are all represented or will be in the body of Christ because God is pulling people out individualistically, but he is incorporating them, bonding them together in community. And the implications of this are absolutely staggering. Firstly, community fellowship is not individual with individual, but it is joint relationship within the body of Christ. Yet it's not centered in geography. Our meditation reading this morning from Acts 4 showed the early believers sharing their physical resources with one another so that there was not a needy person among them, the Bible says. They even sold their properties to pull their resources. Some have said that this was the first Christian commune Oh, it may have been. But it is far too narrow to think that this is what is meant by being baptized into one body in Christ. The body of Christ 
spans the globe. Not a few acres of farmland. It indicates millions of people, not hundreds, not thousands. We need to get a concept of this. That's where you're at. You are brought into the body of Christ. Secondly, a second implication, community fellowship is more than church membership, though church membership is involved in it. Think of it this way. In church membership, we set down our doctrinal distinctions, hopefully biblical convictions, when we had, which we adhere to as a local assembly. But another Christian church up the street may add or delete certain things based on their understanding of the Scriptures. The fellowship indicated by koinonia, however, is not descriptive of individual local beliefs and practices. Rather, it describes a common life that we share in Christ. Yes, based on the essentials of the faith, apart from which there is no Christian content. Yeah, you have that, at least have the basics. But that's the point. Our fellowship is within the broad, as well as the local, but in the broad Christian community of the body. Thirdly, community fellowship is objective, it is not subjective. This means it does not depend on your acceptance of the fact. It does not depend upon your likes or dislikes of certain people. It does not depend on your disagreement or agreement with cultural or provincial emphasis that we find in God's people throughout the world. And despite any aversion that you may have with the different ethnic or racial constituencies of Christ's body, you are a part of it, and every other Christian in the world is part of you. Let me just put it very, very sharply here. You do not have to like a brother or sister in the faith to be one with them in this shared spiritual life. Here's the text. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Romans 12, verse 5. Now that's the fact. And it does not depend on you wanting it so, or wishing that it were otherwise. The bonding is objective, not subjective. And this is not you choosing your Christian friends. This is God uniting you with people all over the world who share the same life of Christ through repentance and faith by His grace. This past week, the Coptic Christians of Egypt were being persecuted by the local Muslim police. 33 of them were killed and many of their churches were burnt to the ground. Coptics is a Latinization of the Greek word for Egyptian. And it came into popular use in the 17th century and it stuck. We don't normally go around saying, well, these are German Christians or these are French Christians or... Swedish Christians, we just say they're Christians. But it stuck in Egypt, and they were called Coptics. 
still are called Coptic Christians. The oldest Christian church in Egypt is in Alexandria. The Coptic Christians are responsible for developing catechisms to teach the doctrines of the faith to their people. The first monasteries, may I say the first seminaries, to prepare men for ministry were in Egypt among the Coptics. Presiding over the first four church council, it was the Coptic Christians who argued out and disputed the things that we have in our faith. The trans they translated the Latin Bible, and here we go with some of the Latin hymns that we were singing this morning, into Egyptian dialects, which then, of course, were translated further on into other dialects as well. Now, while we would not adhere to the Orthodox version of Coptics or the Catholic version of Coptics, Consider what one Protestant Coptic wrote about her faith. Now, she's not a theologian, so she's just giving bullet points of what they believe. Listen to what she says they believe. In regards to the differences between our churches, the articles of faith that we subscribe to include, number one, no confession to a human Whereas the Orthodox confess to an, an abuna, that is to a priest. We don't confess to any human. Number two, we don't pray to saints or appeal to saints. Mainly because we are taught that all Christians are saints. But that all saints need a savior. The only person we pray to or ask for intercession of any sort is Jesus because he's the only one who died for all of us. Next up, number three, we believe that the bread and the wine at the table are symbols and they don't change into the body and blood as Catholics believe and they aren't replaced by the body and blood as the Orthodox believe. Number four, we believe that our salvation is by God's grace and by our faith in it, His sacrifice on the cross alone, but with the stipulation that it's got to be the fruit-bearing kind of faith. Listen to that. Meaning, you can't just say, I believe, and then not act upon it, not tithe, not repent, and not love your neighbor. She goes on, we believe that it's only the blood of Jesus that saves us. We believe that he rose again, that he died for the remission of our sins. We believe that God is love and in everything written in the Bible, even if it seems to contradict itself at times. And we take the Great Commission very seriously and tell the gospel to everyone we meet. Now, we will likely never meet the person who wrote these doctrinal bullet points. Likely, we will not visit a Coptic church in Egypt. But we can empathize with the persecution these people are experiencing for their faith. And we can pray for God's protection and care as fellow members of Jesus' body to which we also 
belong. Years ago, it was Sri Lanka and the refugees that suffered from not only the tsunami, but again, the persecution of the Muslims on their faith. And I remember our missionary, Mano Joseph, asking for prayer for the Sri Lanka refugees, not just the ones that fled to Toronto, but those that were still left over there in his country. How, can, how dare he ask us to pray for them or give financially to them? He dare do it. He must do it because we're members of the same body of Christ. Now, how does corporate fellowship work out? Well, listed there in your outline, firstly, corporate fellowship is devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's part of our text. Paul says there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26. I looked up the word empathy in the dictionary this week. And the dictionary definition of empathy is the capacity to participate. There's that Greek word that we're studying koinonia, or fellowship, to participate in another's feelings or interests. Look at verse 15 of our text. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. What is that? That is devotion, the devotion of brotherly love. You know, some people are so self-absorbed and concerned about themselves that I wonder if they have the capacity to empathize with the heartaches and trials of others. According to Paul, it's a Christian virtue, so maybe some need to rethink, see if they are in the faith. How can we not be concerned about God's hurting people? What do you do when a brother or sister is caught in a crippling sin? You know, the kind of sin that destroys reputations and ruins lives. Oh, this is a great occasion to gossip, isn't it? Here's what we ought to do. Paul writes, Brethren, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him or her Gently, gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, and then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is Galatians 6, first seven verses. Note, restoration of someone gently, restoration is not accusation. You get it? Restoration is not accusation. 
nor is it a lecture in which we belittle a person who has fallen into some sin. Paul says, restore him gently, watching yourself because you too may be tempted, you too may fall into grievous sin. Take it to heart about yourself and what the possibilities could be, might have been already been in some other area, and restore them gently. Secondly, no comparisons. I would not do such and such a thing. That kind of pride will bring you low someday. And when that happens, you'll want the brotherhood to carry your sin burden and not condemn you. And then thirdly, a man reaps what he sows. How you relate to the brethren in their hour of need will mirror how God will relate to you in your hour of need. Jesus put it this way. If you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 6, verse 15. You see, it is your failure of obeying the golden rule backfiring on you. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, verse 12. But you're not living that out if you come against a brother with accusations. Brethren, just as the physical body reacts quickly and decisively to any hurt that comes to the body because of some trauma, every member is intricately connected to the other. So in the spiritual body of Christ, we are intricately connected with a common salvation purchased by the same Savior, granting the same mercy. This is who we are. We're sinners saved by grace. We're no better nor worse than others in the family, we need to be devoted to each other in love. And that means when love is needed the most. When the person has sinned, they don't need you coming along with your big boots and stamping on them. They need you stooping over, grabbing them by the hand, picking them up, dusting them off, putting an arm around them and saying, Let's talk. Let's pray. Now what happened when this, when you did such and such? What were you thinking? You know, I've been there. I've done such and such. It wasn't the same thing you did. but And you begin to bring out the love of Christ because you're devoted to them as part of the body of Christ. Number two, corporate fellowship honors others above self. Look at verse 12. Honor one another. Honor one another above yourselves. The first outworking, brotherly love, helping them, eliminating, eliminates criticism, gossip, condemnation, slander. Why? Because we examine ourselves and we see ourselves as poor sinners, just like this brother or sister who fell into sin. And we, we see our own vulnerability. And so we come to them with love and compassion and we gently restore. And criticism is dealt with in our own hearts. We bite our tongue. We keep our thoughts pure. This second outworking of honoring others above self eliminates competition among believers. Because we are genuinely pleased when another in the body does well or receives due recognition for his or her achievements. 
The competitive spirit of our world, may I say our country, whether it's in sports, business, personal lives, whatever, that has no place in the body of Christ. And again, because we, being many, are one body. Paul writes it this way. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. How can this be? Well, it's like a basketball team. Every player knows that he cannot win the state championship on his own. He might be the best hoop shooter on the team, and yet he will lose if he does not rely on others. The coach can make the statement, there is no room on this team for prima donnas. What did he mean? He meant that anyone who thought of himself as some hot shot who could hog all the balls and make all the baskets would soon find himself sitting on the bench. Why? Because he denied the very principle of victory, teamwork, working together. Well, our pride is such a stumbling block to fellowship at times. We covet recognition. We want that pat on the back, the accolades of an approving crowd. We say, I'm doing this for God's glory. <laughs> yeah, we say that. But we function with jealousy and envy because it is our own glory which is our main concern. One day the Spirit of the Lord fell upon some of the elders in Israel. And they began to prophesy. They began to preach in the name of God. When Joshua heard this, he went to Moses and he protested. He said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. You know, just use your authority as the head of this nation. Stop these guys. Listen to Moses' humble reply. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them all. Numbers 11, verse 28 and verse 29. You see, Joshua did not like the idea that these men were preaching. He was jealous that no one steal Moses' pulpit. This is the wrong kind of jealousy. And Moses brought a swift rebuke and an appropriate correction. Would to God, he says, that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. It's an honorable thing to be called by God to preach his word and teach his word. And they were all, Joshua was all upset because he thought maybe some of um, Moses' glory would be diminished with these others who preached. How do you react when God blesses some other believer, or can I say some other church? Are we not in the same family, though in different geographical areas or perhaps in a different denomination? We're to honor others above ourselves. If God is in it, 
Let's rejoice. Let's not worry about whether all the I's and all the T's are dotted and crossed as we would do them. We're sharing the common life that flows through us by the Spirit of God. And I'm not talking about heresy and not talking about ignoring apostasy or heretical teaching or anything of that nature. I'm just talking about genuine believers who know and love Christ, but they don't see every little thing the same way as, our, as we do. We're in the body with them. We share their life in Christ. And then lastly, corporate fellowship prays for one another. Look at verse 12. Be faithful in prayer. We read in Acts 2 that the first church was devoted to prayer, among other things. It's easy to pray for your own needs, for personal spiritual growth, progress in personal holiness, strengthening of your faith, your fortitude. People generally are very adept at praying by themselves, for themselves, and for their biological families. I pray for my kids, I pray for my grandchildren. I pray for my brother and sister. I pray for my dad. You know, that's easy. It's easy. It's easy to pray that. But it's quite another thing to gather with God's people in corporate prayer. Prayer not for you. Not with me, my mind at the forefront. But prayer that thinks we, us, others. Prayer meeting is the most important service of the church, but it is also the poorest attended. And that's true of us. Part of this may be due to the busyness of our lives, or at least we say that. But you know, we're all given 24 hours a day and how we allocate those, how we steward, act as stewards of, the, of that time. It's personal, personal. Mostly, it is due to a failure on our part to see the need to pray beyond our personal needs and desires. Some of you ran well on this at the beginning of your Christian experience. But you've fallen prey to the devil's lie that you can pray alone at home or that others can pray just as well without you. But God expects you to fellowship corporately prayer. Oh, and by the way, there are consequences in your lives for your absenteeism. James put it this way. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, you do not have because you do not ask God. James 4, verse 2. And the you in all of these verses is not singular. It's not thou. It's ye. James is rebuking the brethren for not gathering collectively to ask God for their spiritual needs. And as a consequence, he's saying, God isn't blessing them with the answers they expect. We believers must function as the body of Christ that we are. 
Paul said, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16. Corporate prayer is vital to this kind of growth. I expect you as members to be out to pray. And what is more, God commands it. And He links His blessings to you, to your compliance. It's amazing how we think God is some kind of sugar daddy in the sky. All we have to do is ask Him. He'll shower us with blessings just because we asked. My obedience doesn't matter. Well, let me tell you this morning, it does matter. It matters. Otherwise, we're just users of God. And he's saying, you know, you're a body. I pulled you into a body. Christ is the head. You are individual members. Now, let's function together in fellowship as the corporate body that we are. Not individualistically. Well, Jesus is my Savior, so that's cool. And I don't have to care about you or think about you. No, start to think broader. Start to think corporately and how the Lord can bless us as a church as we work together in all of these spiritual disciplines. It's not me, 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 me. It's us. It's we. As we begin to think like that, you're going to see a change what God will do with this little church. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction on it. Corporate fellowship, wow. It's not something we have thought too much about. Even this week we might think, oh, well, I'm going to have dinner with so-and-so this week. And we're thinking about that family we invited over to our house. Well, that's part of it. But there's a broader spectrum. Help us, Lord, to, to get the concept. We're members of the body of Christ, saved individually, individually accountable, yes, but bonded in community. Yes, the local church, and that's where we're concentrating because this is where we're at, but also with all people that are of the same faith and have Jesus as their Savior. And that expands our thoughts, or should, to other people in our community, but also to other people in our country, and to, and to other countries, Christians who are suffering in ways that are yet not part of our experience. Help us to learn to have our hearts go out to those nameless Coptic Christians in Egypt. Or the ones that uh, Brother Blake writes about in Kenya, Nairobi, that are also under Islamic persecution for their faith, whose children are being captured, whose women are being raped, whose villages are being pillaged. It's not happening here, so why should we concern us? It should concern us. It should break our heart. 
these black people whose skin is black as coal, they're part of the body of Christ. They're in our family. And we can pray for them. And we can give financially to help them. We can do the things that we can do. We can't do everything, but we can do the things we can do. We can support our missionaries. Please, Lord, help us to get a vision that's broader than ourselves and our immediate biological families. Help us to think outside the box. For those that don't know Christ, I pray this morning today you'll stir their hearts. They must be saved individually. They must come individually. They have to repent themselves. No one can do that for them. They have to believe themselves. No one can do that for them. They have to confess their sins and seek your face. Lord, stir their hearts to do that. Give them want to to do that. We'd love to see them part of the fellowship, part of the corporate body of Christ. There's so much blessing there. Thank you for each one here today. Pray that your word would be sealed in our hearts. Christ's name, amen.